We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men gathered in Philadelphia to consider how to make the government of the United States more perfect. Over the course of five months, they argued, debated, considered and rejected ideas, notions, and various systems. In the end, they created the Constitution of the United States a document predicated on the idea that men can rule themselves by law. This is Constitution Thursday, a time when we look at the history, ideas, arguments, and interpretations of the Constitution, from its original creation to today, and how it affects our lives now. Well, good morning and welcome back to Constitution Thursday. It is me, Dave. If you want to get a hold of me, your telephone number is area code 209-565-DAVE. 209-565-DAVE. That's the voicemail and text mail machine. You can also email me, Dave, at thedavebowmanshow.com. And, of course, we're on the web. Just look for The Dave Bowman Show on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, iTunes, as well as Spotify. Constitution Thursday, by the way. We'll talk about that at some point. Well, it seems like it was just a week ago that we were sitting here talking about this, this, uh, this ruling out of North Carolina. Remember this? Just a week ago. There is no pandemic exception except... Let me try that again. There is no pandemic exception to the Constitution of the United States or the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment. Blah, blah, blah. And, and so forth and so on. This was out of uh, North Carolina. And... To hear some talk about this, you would have thought this was the be-all, end-all of the whole argument. Constitution's issues with free exercise of religion. I know last week I kept calling it free expression. They're very similar, and, and, and I don't necessarily regret that, but it, it is technically free exercise. And as I've said many times, don't necessarily, <laughs> I usually catch these things later and re, uh, re-correct them. Recorrect them. Correct them. To recorrect them would be to make them wrong again. In any case, um, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And this ruling out of North Carolina was seen very, very excitedly, particularly by the uh, religious right, as being the be-all, end-all of this. And I remarked to you last week that it was intriguing to me that the governor was not appealing it. And I gave you some reasons why I thought he was not appealing it, Uh, the main one being that it was a 14-day temporary restraining order and the incubation period of COVID between 2 and 14 days, depending on who you talk to. There is a hearing on May 29th, that's tomorrow as I record this, to 
determine whether or not this will be a permanent junction. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to tell you right now today, I think that the North Carolina Circuit Court, the uh, Fourth Circuit Court, will in fa- or Judge Deaver will, in fact, make this a permanent TRO. And I'll tell you why I think that uh, as, we, as we move along. The, the incredible thing here is that at literally the same time that was happening, I mean at almost virtually the same time, within 24 hours of that ruling coming out, there was a second case out of San Diego, Chula Vista to be exact, in which a local Baptist church, Chula Vista, Pente- uh, I forget the name of it, Pentecostal something uh, church out of Chula Vista, California, it's down by San Diego, had fired literally the same argument against Governor Newsom's order that was essentially the same as the North Carolina order, restricting religious gatherings in the state of California. With the North Carolina ruling, they kind of expected something similar. They did file it before that, and on May 15th, it was was denied. The TRO request was denied by a local uh, district judge there in San Diego. That was then appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court, where it went before a, two ju- a three-judge panel. And in a two-to-one ruling on Friday, last Friday, less than 24 hours after the North Carolina ruling, the, the Ninth Circuit Court upheld the judge's denial of the TRO. Now, this is, this is important to understand this for a lot of reasons. Um, they, they essentially said, we conclude that the appellates, that would be the church, have not demonstrated a sufficient likelihood of success on appeal. Now, that's 180 degrees out from what Justice Judge Deaver said over in North Carolina. He said that they did demonstrate that sufficient likelihood. Here, we did not. Uh, and they deny that, and they move on. But in the process of saying this, they, they go into some interesting things here that Judge Deaver did not go into. The Ninth Circuit appellate, the the panel, two to one, said very simply, where state action does not, quote, infringe upon or restrict practices because of their religious motivation and does not in a selective manner impose burdens only on conduct motivated by religious beliefs, it does not violate the First Amendment. That is interesting to me, and we're going to get into some of that in just a minute. But it's this, the final sentence in this ruling that really attracted my attention. I had a little bit of a discussion with Path the Lawyer over this. Uh, They went on to say, we are dealing here with a highly contagious and often fatal disease. Are we? For which there is presently no known cure. Again, are we? In the words of Justice Robert Jackson, if a court does not temper its doctrinaire logic with a little practical wisdom, it will convert the Constitutional Bill of Rights into a suicide pact. And then they quote the case, Terminiello versus City of Chicago. The, the, the Ninth Circuit Court here has given us their reasoning, and they've kind of explained it, although this is one of those things where if you don't step into the Wayback Machine, you may not understand what they're talking about here. As we've talked about on numerous occasions, how can two groups of people or two different people look at literally the same words and come to completely opposite conclusions? I hate to say it, but we've actually reached the point now where we don't judge a judge's ruling based on the actual ruling. We judge it based on who appointed them. And, of course, Deaver was reported appointed by a Republican, whereas 
two of the three judges on the Ninth Circuit Court panel were appointed by Democrats. So automatically, what we think of these rulings is more driven by our politics than it is by the content of those rulings. And that's part of the problem. For us to really understand this, we have to step back into the Wayback Machine, and we have to, we have to start to understand the world as it was when different things were happening. Back before the Second World War, in the Great Depression era, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected, there was a Catholic priest who was on the radio. <laughs> this is kind of uh, intriguing, because Father Coughlin, as he was known, was a firebrand. He started out his career in radio as a an ardent supporter of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He would later become Franklin Delano Roosevelt's harshest critic. He was literally Rush Limbaugh to Bill Clinton. I mean, people say, you know, Bill Clinton was always whining, hey, you even picked down like me. It just demonstrates a lack of understanding of history. Father Coughlin was a, he was a firebrand on the radio. And he constantly, just as he, as he grew in his audience size and his, his, his movement grew, he just absolutely became, I don't even, there aren't even really words to describe how outrageous he became. You, people, those of you that don't like Rush Limbaugh today, Rush Limbaugh is maybe 50% of the influence that Father Coughlin had in his days, maybe on a good day. Father Coughlin was able to raise literally millions of dollars. People would send him, and this was 1930s, Depression-era time, folks. He was able to raise millions upon millions of dollars just by asking people to send him money to support his work. Kind of like uh, some radio hosts today whose entire shows are, hey, sign up for my website, (laughs) sort of thing. One of the followers of Father Coughlin, however, was a guy by the name of Father Terminiello. And I keep mispronouncing his name. I apologize. Father Terminiello was similarly inclined to Father Coughlin, whose whose leanings tended towards the radical. They they were vehemently anti-communist, which is weird. They were pro-socialist but anti-communist. But they were also both anti-capitalist. They were very much against the the rich, the wealthy, and the abuses that they believed that they were putting on the country. Father Terminiello, however, went a little bit further, and both of them were graphically anti-Semitic. Both of them would adopt positions that were very similar towards the Jews as Adolf Hitler's. And in fact, uh, Father Coughlin, while distancing himself from the American Nazi party, would often quote Mein Kampf. He would oft, often talk about Hitler's uh, positive treatment of the Jews, and, and Terminiello was, was very similar. And it got to the point where <clears throat> if you hated Father Coughlin, you hated Father Terminiello. I mean, that's, just, that's actually what one of the leading uh, people of the day, politician and influencers of the day, actually said. The people who hate Father Terminiello hate Father Coughlin. They're, they're one and the same. In 1949, post-war, Father Terminiello was the founder of an organization called Christian Veteran Christian Veterans, and they held meetings, they raised money, they sought to influence the political aspect of things. They would eventually nominate, as a party, they would eventually nominate Douglas MacArthur for President of the United States, 
who would never agree to run on their ticket. He would just he just said no. He got 532 votes. This party actually, this organization actually existed until 1977 when it finally uh, disbanded and has been subsequently replaced, I note, by a, by a newer group. This group, this veterans, Christian Veterans of America, was very nationalistic in a way that today people who hate Donald Trump and nationalism could only dream of. I mean, they, this is what these are the people that they they call the people today when they say nationalists today. These people believe that the Jews were controlling the banks, that that the world, the communism was was the moral enemy, and it is. I mean, I agree with that too. But but they they really their beliefs were based in racism and hatred rather than any rational thought. But they were veterans, so boom. At any rate, Father Terminiello was was invited to go to Chicago to give a speech where he went. And the speech, as you might have guessed, draws comparisons to some recent events like Charlottesville and and uh, the, the gay guy. I can't think of his name now. It's gone. Y- Yiannopoulos, whatever his name is. The, the guy that goes around to college campuses, Ben Shapiro, does the same thing. And the reaction was very similar. Well, the members of the Christian veterans were excited to hear from Father Terminiello. The local other people were not. And what happened, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because we don't have a lot of time to get into it. What essentially happened, as would be noted later, was a riot. Terminiello's speech was a disruption of the peace. There were bricks being thrown. Police officers got hurt. People were scared for their lives. And, and ultimately, Terminiello was cited by the city of Chicago for disturbing the peace and fined for speaking his, his, his speech. He appealed this to the Illinois Supreme Court because freedom of speech, and they upheld the, the, the fine. They upheld the, the citation saying, no, you, you knew that you were going to disturb this peace. You knew that your words were going to create problems, and so they, they upheld the fine. It eventually went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, which reversed on a 5-4, sharply divided ruling, the Supreme Court upheld Father Terminello's defense that it was freedom of speech. And just because it was inflammatory, just because it was offensive, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be destroyed. But in the middle of all that was a dissent by uh, Justice Jackson. Now, this is important to understand because the, the wording here is important. In the words of Justice Jackson, this is as quoted by the Ninth Circuit Court. If a court does not temper its doctrinaire logic with a little practical wisdom, it will convert the, bill, the Constitutional Bill of Rights into a suicide pact. Now, Jackson's dissent is massive. I mean, it is long, it is detailed. He goes through the whole thing about what happened in Chicago and points out the fact that the court seems to be favoring anarchy over liberty and order. So you can have liberty and anarchy, or you can have liberty and order, or you can have neither. And his argument is that if there is no limit on the First Amendment, if there are no reasonable limits on the First Amendment, then we're going to have anarchy. If every time someone opens their mouth to speak their free speech, people who don't like that object... What's going to happen? We're going to have people throwing things at each other. We're going to have riots. And this is, not, this is, in the words of the scriptures, this is every man doing what's right unto himself. And that, he saw that as a problem. But keep in mind, he was in the dissent. This is not law. This is not a court ruling. 
the court ruling was that you uh, <laughs> you have the right to say these things as long as it doesn't go into the you know the fighting words, incitement, and that sort of thing. And the, the the belief was that Father Terminiello's words were not. It was the the reaction to people, the, the reaction from people that was causing the problem. And so, when we look at that, it's still First Amendment issues, but it becomes a little broader. We got to jump ahead in history. We got to jump ahead to to 1993. In the closing years of of the Cold War and the like, many people came here from Cuba where they were being religiously persecuted, and they came to settle in South Florida. If you've ever been to South Florida, you know that it's heavily Cuban, and it's kind of cool. I've been there, and it's it's one of the most fun places I've ever been. Uh, the Cuban people are wonderful people, and they have a coffee that is fantastic. They make this Cuban coffee thing that it's about that big. And once upon a time, I had a friend from Cuba who made me some of that, he, he didn't warn me, so I had about six of them, and I didn't sleep for like a week. Anyway, one of the, three, one of the problems with Cuba was they would persecute the religion of Santeria. The Santeria, which I don't practice Santeria, but I'm pish, um, is it is a, an amalgamation of both Roman Catholicism and Voodooism. It is very animalistic, it is very... Uh, I, I, again, I don't practice it. I'm familiar with it enough to know that it's strange. I have some one massive experience with this kind of thing that I'll tell you about some other day, but doesn't really apply here. But these practice, these practitioners of Santeria who moved to Florida during the cold war and that time, because of the persecution that they were undergoing in Cuba, came to American shores to practice their free exercise of religion. The problem is, of course, that they are essentially voodooists, and, and they practice animal sacrifice, which here in America is generally seen in a very negative light. We don't necessarily like animal sacrifice. And so we tend to react negatively to this. In 1993, a new church, Santerian church, was opened in Hylia, Florida, with the intention of practicing their religion freely and fully. The city of Hylia, Florida, objected to this. They they did not want these Santerians practicing their religion here in the beautiful palm trees of Hylia, Florida, which we've also been to. But they began to pass laws, city regulations. They held hearings. They held... They even, at one point, they had the, the police chaplain came in at one point and actually gave a testimony to the city council about how destructive Santeria was and how un-American, those were the exact words he used, Santeria is. And it should not be permitted on our shores. It should not be permitted in our cities. It's, it's, it's evil. It's, I mean, they, they used all the words that are cute words for nationalism and the like. And so the city council of Hylia unanimously passed a ban on specific religious actions that basically only occur in Santeria. Makes sense? They essentially banned Santeria, the practice of Santeria, within the confines of the city of Hylia. Well, what would you do if your free exercise was, was, was banned specifically 
And it was laws specifically targeted at that. Well, many people feel that these executive orders are that. And so you would do what they do, and they sued. And, of course, in the courts in Florida, they lost. The courts of Florida agreed that this was an un-American practice, that it was evil practice, that it was a dangerous practice, that it was an unhealthy practice because of the animal sacrifice, so forth and so on. state of Florida upheld it, and it went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Well, the United States Supreme Court said, no, you, uh, your motivation in passing these laws is not the welfare of the community. Your motivation to passing these laws restricting this type of worship, this free exercise of worship, is not rooted in the belief that it's protecting the entire community from some existential threat. It's, in fact, based in the fact, based on your own testimony and your own hearing, it's based on the fact that you don't like these people, that you do not like Santeria, that you think that they are <laughs> evil, that you believe that you know, it's religiously motivated. It is, it is based not in facts and not in, not in the, the need of the people, but it is, again, restricted practices based on their religious motivation and in a selective manner imposing burdens only on conduct only motivated by religious beliefs. If it hadn't been that, well, then maybe we'd have a different story. And the Ninth Circuit Court's ruling on the Chula Vista Church, is that the executive order that Newsom has put into place is not that. It is not based solely upon religious motivations, and it is not in a selective manner imposing burdens only motivated on conduct, only motivated by religious beliefs. The, the Ninth Circuit Court believes that this is, this is, again, we're dealing here with a highly contagious and often fatal disease for which there's no presently no cure, and... If we don't use some tempered doctrinaire logic, some practical wisdom, we will use the the Bill of Rights, as Jackson wrote in his dissent, to become a suicide pact, and we will all die, is the argument. The Chula Vista Church, just so you know, and we don't know what this is going to go, the Chula Vista Church has, in fact, appealed this ruling from the Ninth Circuit to the Supreme Court of the United States. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day. I kind of wonder if it'll go in bank first in the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit has a history of vacating orders and, and going that, but we'll see what happens. But it has been appealed to the United States Supreme Court, where ultimately the United States Supreme Court will have to make the decision as to whether or not to hear this. And normally they base that on two things. Remember what I said at the beginning? Um, about the hearing tomorrow, as I record this, out of North Carolina. Supreme Court looks very closely at whether or not they have two, at least two district courts who disagree. And if the, if the North Carolina court, the Fourth Circuit Court, decides to uphold the TRO, the, the permanent injunction against the governor of North Carolina's order, then you will have East Coast, West Coast, you will have Fourth Circuit Court saying yes, it's a violation of the First Amendment, and you will have the West Coast Ninth Circuit Court saying, no, it's not. And that gives you the basis for having a Supreme Court case. You have two different courts that have disagreed. That puts pressure on equal protection and due process. And so we need to, the Supreme Court will need to make a decision that applies to everybody across the land. See what I'm driving out there? And that's why I think, and again, you can't really predict what a court is going to do, 
That's why I think the, the North Carolina courts will look at this and go, the, the federal courts in North Carolina will look at this and go, not necessarily to be influenced by, by politics, but given Justice Deaver's argument that there is no pandemic exception, right? I mean, that's what the man said. There is no pandemic exception to the Constitution versus the Ninth Circuit courts. Hey, it's not a suicide pact. We're going to have to have a decision made here. We're going to have to have somebody superior to both of these two courts saying, yes, it is, or no, it isn't. Now, it's very possible that by the time they do all this, it'll be a moot point. Who knows? But in the meantime, it's going to move forward probably because of this. The United States Supreme Court will have to make that decision. I don't know the answer. I see merits in both sides' arguments. There is no pandemic to the Constitution, exemption to the Constitution. I agree with that. There isn't. But at the same time, do the executive orders, and these are the same questions I asked last week, do the executive orders really put that much of a burden on the free exercise of that religion? Given what the scriptures say, what what Christians say they believe, do these restrictions really put that much of a burden on that? And, in the words of the Ninth Circuit Court, is that burden motivated by religious behavior? Is it targeted at only religious behavior? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. The bigger question that Jackson leaves us with, and it's a fascinating story, you should, you should go read it. I'll link up some of it in the, in the notes for today, the, the case of Father Terminiello. The bigger question is, do First Amendment rights have, are, are they absolute? Do you always have the right to free exercise of your religion no matter what? Do you always have that? I think, I think the logical amongst us will agree that that's not the case. You don't always have absolute free, express, free, ex, free expression rights. The question is, what are those limits, if there are any? And if there aren't any, the anarchy that occurs could essentially be a suicide pact for liberty. If, if you have the right to religiously discriminate against me by doing whatever your religion calls for me, stoning me because, you know, whatever you don't like about me, what happens to my life, liberty, and, and pursuit of happiness? It's easy to say your rights end where my rights begin or where your rights end where they violate my rights, but are we really thinking in those terms? bigger question, of course, still remains with regards to covert and these emergency declarations and these orders of this nature. Do we really want one person deciding all this? In retrospect, would it not have been better off to have a better system for determining these things rather than just allowing one man or woman, a governor of a state, to just have total executive authority to decide these things? Because by the time this thing gets through the courts, by the time this thing gets finally decided... COVID may may not be an issue anymore. But trust me on this. There will be another issue, won't there? You know why? Because there always is.